In our scripture lessons for today, we are told something about the heart of God. Something which should disturb us if we honestly measure our life in its light. The setting of the story that Jesus tells in Matthew 25 is the divine throne room at the end of time. There, the Son of Man, that's Jesus' preferred title for himself when he's describing his ultimate cosmic role. There, the Son of Man is revealed in all of his heavenly glory. That is, is revealed for who he fully is. Is revealed for his absolute majesty and power and goodness. On that particular day, says Jesus, and I quote, all the nations will be gathered before him. That means everybody, all of the peoples of the earth will be gathered. And Jesus will separate the people one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. How hard do you think it is for a shepherd to tell a sheep from a goat? I believed up until last service that the answer was, Not very hard. But then I was approached between the services by individuals who had just come from a sheep and goat farm in the Dominican Republic and told me that actually it's extremely difficult to tell the difference between sheep and goats. As their hair grows out and wild and amok, it's extremely difficult to tell the difference between the two. But Jesus says, That the master, the king in the story, will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, which side do you think it's better to be on? That's right. It is better to be a simple sheep than a guilty goat. So how does the great shepherd determine who's a sheep and who is a goat? And the answer is, he cannot tell from looking at the outside. He really cannot tell from the outside. From the hairy mass, from the unkempt mass, he must look at the heart. He looks to see the heart of the creature. He looks to see whether each person has a heart that follows, that will be at home in the pastures of eternity because it follows after the shepherd's heart or whether the individual has a heart that will always be butting against the way of the kingdom. Because it is a, not, a non-following but a selfish heart. And how does the shepherd know what the orientation of each person's heart is? We must ask. And the answer, the answer the parable tells us is that the shepherd looks to see how they are oriented toward the least of these. My brothers and sisters, the least of society. How, for example, did we treat people in economic need? The person, the poor person in need of food or a drink or clothing. How did the creatures respond to the person in social need? The stranger or the outsider who had little hope of getting in unless somebody opened the door and made a place around the table and gave them space around the fire who already had entrance themselves? How did they care for the person with medical needs? How did they care for the sick and the vulnerable person whose very body was letting them down? How did they render to that person companionship or comfort? 
How did they care for the person with moral need is another concern of the shepherd. How did they reach out to the criminal failure in need of some touch, utterly undeserved? The clear message of this parable of Jesus is that God intimately identifies with people in need. He identifies so deeply with the plight of such people that he says that to care for them is to care for him. To ignore them is to ignore him. When I see you loving on them, it feels like you're loving on me, says Jesus. When I see you dismissing them, it feels like you're dismissing me, says Jesus. He does not tell us why God especially cares for the hurting and the humble. Jesus does not give us an argument for why we should care for the hurting and the humbled. He does not supply us with a needs assessment filter so that we will know who is really deserving of our care and who is not. Jesus does not outline for us an ideal social welfare system or a perfect health care policy or a prison reform plan, though all of us would be extremely grateful if he saved us the trouble of working these things out. Jesus simply says, this is how the heart of God is oriented. This is how the heart of God moves. He cares for people who cannot meet their needs without help. He cares for people who cannot meet their needs without someone who possesses something, some capacity they don't possess. He cares for people who cannot meet their needs without somebody who possesses something they don't who is actually willing to give that thing, to extend that thing. The consistent message of the Bible is that while the actions of God are holy and they are just, his heart is compassionate and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. I wish we had time to go through the dozens and dozens of scriptures that underline this aspect of the nature of God's own heart. Again and again, the scriptures proclaim that God extends compassionate care to those who may not deserve it, but who desperately need it. In this parable, Jesus is telling us that God's eternal kingdom is only for people who love that heart who love that heart and who want to have that heart themselves, albeit they may not have it in full yet. Conversely, if your orientation in life is that I prefer to have nothing to do with the least, I'm not sure they really deserve my help. I, 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 I think they ought to work out their own solutions. If your orientation is I, I, I want nothing to do with them, then God says, you will have nothing to do with me. I don't think any message of Jesus is plainer than this one. And that this is actually the heart of God is further amplified by the fact that this same heart gets pictured again and again for us in the Old Testament as well. As the passage we read from Isaiah would suggest. 
So the question rises, how then is it that I can read this parable as many times as I have and still clutch for the channel changer every time one of those humanitarian aid ads comes on the television? How is it that I do this? Why do I so consistently choose the company of my familiar circle of friends when I get to the church building or the social gathering rather than looking for that stranger who's standing alone that needs some help getting in? When 50% of the people in nursing homes in America receive fewer than one visit per year, that's the fact. 50% of the people in nursing homes, fewer than one visit per year. How is it that when I have a nursing home on the route, I drive every single day on my way home? I haven't been in there once this year. How is this possible? I have two acquaintances serving time in prison right now. They're people from Christ Church. They've written to me recently. How is it that I'm so slow to respond? Why is that? Why is it that I'm so slow? When 9.7 million children under the age of five are still dying each year of completely preventable conditions, why am I not more actively in the fight to do something about this? In short, as a professed follower of Jesus, why is my heart not more like God's? Why am I more often like the goats in Jesus' parable than the sheep? Why am I not doing more to care for the least of these, Christ's brothers and sisters, and why aren't you? Why? Some of it's pure selfishness, I suppose. Some of it's pure busyness, I suppose. Some of it is skepticism about being used by others, I suppose. But I suspect there is another reason why our hearts grow more care less than in our clearest moments we would want them to be. And it's a reason that I came to understand through an encounter I had some years ago. It was one of those cold winter nights that will be upon us soon again, I imagine. It was one of those cold, misty nights that make you glad for a good, warm coat and a short walk home. And I was out walking that night, very, very late. I'd gone walking into town. I was coming back home. I was lost in my thoughts when something began to intrude that lifted me slowly out of my daze. It was a clinking sound. It was a scratching, a rustling of something or someone coming up from behind me on the other side of the street. And when I finally tuned into it, I felt this chill go down my back as you would if you were all alone in a dark place and you're hearing somebody approaching you. And I finally mustered up enough courage to turn around and to look back to try and see what it is to locate the source of the sound. And I saw him. He was big, and he was black, and he was scraggly, 
and he was a dog. And I don't know how to describe it quite, but a strange sense of pleasure flooded over me. Partly because it wasn't a mugger. Partly because I was no longer alone, I think. And so, without even thinking, I just walked out into the middle of the street. And, and, and I squatted down. And I put out my hand. And he started to come over. And with that tentativeness appropriate to a creature that has been kicked perhaps once or twice too hard and too often, he approached me very, very slowly until his nose was just reaching out to touch the tip of my fingers when all of a sudden this feeling of panic began to rise up within me. And I pulled my hand back. I mean, this dog might have rabies. I mean, he could have fleas. He could have cooties. He, who knows what's wrong with this animal? I mean, this is, this is crazy. I don't know anything about this creature. And then another feeling came over me, and I dared to put my hand back out again. And it turns out he wasn't a dangerous animal. And, and, and he began to lick my hand. And before you knew it, he had, had lain down right there in the middle of the street. And the two of us made quite a sight for anybody that was passing by. Because, you know, there I am, sort of squatted down. And I'm scratching his belly and he's rolling around and his hind leg is going like he never wants me to stop. And, and I eventually do stop because my knees are starting to feel the pain. And I slap him on the side and I stand up and, and I walk away. And I get about five steps or so up the road towards home when suddenly I feel inside of me exactly what the deepest murmur of anxiety was when I first debated whether to reach out to him. Because as I glance over my shoulder now, guess what I see? You know, he's following me. He is following me home. To care for a dog for a few minutes is one thing. But to have the creature follow me home was more than I could stand. That amount of responsibility I frankly did not want. That amount of love and time and patience I simply did not have. I turned and yelled at the dog. I stamped my feet at the dog. I told him to stop following me. And I turned and I began to jog the last distance home and I began to chunk, choke back this lump in my throat and something inside of me seemed to die. But I went on. How much more panic would I have felt if that creature had not simply been a stray dog but a real live human being? And yet I wonder if that isn't a good part of what prevents me 
and perhaps you, from opening our hands and opening our hearts to the sick and the hungry and the imprisoned and the lonely and the grieving and the estranged people who walk the streets of our life every day. Isn't that really the problem? Isn't that the biggest problem? It's not that we don't understand the call of the gospel, but that we understand it too well. It's not that we're unaware of who the least among us are. It's just that there are so many of them. It's not that we're unable to care in the least, but that by showing even the least care, we may open ourselves to caring so much, to a sense of responsibility for the well-being of other people from which we, we can't run away without something vital inside of us dying just a bit more, something more alive in those moments when we risk caring for somebody in need than at any other point in our daily lives, something which gives life and depth and richness and hope to our being. but which we're too busy to attend to so much of the time. How can I begin to care like Jesus describes? I ask. I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I don't have the patience. I don't have the love to solve the problems of all the stray dogs and the hurting people of this world. I've got family, you may be saying. I've got work to do. I've got responsibilities and commitments. I cannot handle the flood of people and problems that would absolutely overwhelm me if I open my heart to all the people for whom God cares. And you're right. You're right. But that's why it's so important, I think, to pay very close attention to what Jesus actually did himself and to what Jesus actually calls us to do in this parable we've been studying. Jesus did not scratch the belly of every stray dog. Jesus did not heal every person he met who was sick. He did not befriend every stranger. He did not feed every hungry person. He did not give water to every thirsty person. Jesus did not, however, let the size of the need stop him from extending the grace that he could. In the parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus does not hold his followers responsible for eliminating all hunger and thirst and homelessness and illness and crime. He doesn't celebrate and extol the value of the vast social programs mounted by his followers in this particular case. He simply celebrates that they did something. That they did what they could that they reached out their hands, opened their hearts, and offered some care. Many of you are doing a lot of that something. Already I know. Some of you are exhibiting hearts of compassion that would stun the rest of us if we knew what Jesus knows about how you are pouring out your life's blood 
to care for the needs of the least. But I know that my family's heart is not as compassionate, not as careful as Christ wants it to be. To be honest, we are pretty careless a lot of the time. We're careless about the way we spend resources that could be used for better purposes. We care less about the concerns and needs of people outside of our familiar frame of reference. And so one of the disciplines that we're undertaking this month as a family is to try and do one thing that is careful, that is reflective, and that opens us up in some way. We're going to go to the World Vision AIDS exhibit at our church. We're going to do this together as a family. We're going to volunteer there, and I'm going to go through it, even though it feels very, very threatening, to me at least. It feels terrifying in some ways because I wonder what it could do to the imagination of my children who run our house. The AIDS problem, as you know, is a big one, a very, very big one. 15 million children worldwide orphaned by the disease already, 12 million in the continent of Africa alone. In some African countries, nearly 20% of the children are orphaned now. Imagine a fifth of your local school made up of children that go home to nobody. No supervision, no care. Ten-year-olds, head of the household, raising other children. And I think that if we open our hearts and we let this story, the story of even one of these children into our hearts, it's, it's scary to imagine how that could disrupt our family's complacency and our spending patterns. It might be very disturbing and very disruptive for you to do the same thing or to open your heart to some other representative of the least of these in some other circle outside of the AIDS problem. But there is one thing even scarier, I think, than that. The only thing more terrifying than responding to the murmur of the heart that says, dare to care more for one of the least The only thing scarier than opening your heart to responding to that murmur is learning to ignore the murmur altogether. Till you never hear it anymore. Till you never feel it anymore. Till you lose the heart of Jesus himself how can we begin to care more for the least of these christ's brothers and sisters my friends in view of all the ways that god has cared for us that christ has given us what we could not give to save ourselves. In view of this, how can we do less than try? Please pray with me. O God of the greatest and the least of all people, 
Make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us so love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is hunger, nourishment. Where there is loneliness, friendship. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that we may not seek so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For you have told us that it is in giving that we receive, it is in reaching out that we are held, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.